Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Susie Ferguson. We're recording today from Oak Maidana, Istanbul, with co-hosts Sechil Yilmaz and Ella Frarantuano. In previous episodes of this podcast, we've talked with guests about how the Tanzimat reforms of the 19th century reshaped the dynamics of high politics, Ottoman administration, and everyday life for different ethnic, religious, and linguistic groups across the empire. But the transformations of the Tanzimat era varied widely, not only between Istanbul and the Ottoman provinces, but also between rural and urban communities. Today, we move to central Anatolia, to the region of Cappadocia, to think about how rural populations experienced the Tanzimat and the many changes it wrought. We'll explore Cappadocia and trace the shifting relationships between the Orthodox Christians and Muslims who lived there from the beginning of the Reform Era in 1839 to the demise of the Ottoman Empire. So joining us on the podcast today to discuss her fascinating research on this subject is Island Datapia. Welcome to the podcast, Island. Hello. Island received her doctoral degree in 2016 from Boazici University in Istanbul and the École des Hautes Études en Sciences Sociales in Paris. Her dissertation is entitled Orthodox Christians and Muslims of Cappadocia, Intercommunal Relations in an Ottoman Rural Context, 1839 to 1923. Aylin is currently an archivist at the Boazici University Archive and Documentation Center and an associate researcher at the Institut Francais des Etudes Anatoliennes in Istanbul. Aylin will also be continuing her postdoctoral studies at the University of Aix-Marseille beginning this October. So congratulations, Aylin. Thank you very much. So for many of our listeners, Cappadocia may be better known as a tourist destination than a subject of research. But Aylin, in your study, you reveal the rich social history of the region that brings together different linguistic, ethnic, and religious groups who all lived together in Cappadocian villages for a time. So I want to start by asking you to describe for us what did Cappadocia mean or refer to in the 19th century, and who were the different communities who lived there? Actually, one of the first questions that I began to explore at the beginning of my research was the concept of Cappadocia itself, because it was not something that you can even today, defined very easily. So I needed to define the borders of this geographical region uh, to be able to have the limits of which villages I will uh, study and which one will remain outside my research. And actually, it was not so, so easy affair. So today, for instance, we all know Cappadocia, as you said, as a touristic place, as the place of the fairy chimneys of the underground cities, uh, of Byzantine churches, Repestrian churches especially. Uh, but as I said, even today, this area has no clear definition, no administrative definition, for instance. We have the border of the site defined by uh, the UNESCO around Gureme, but actually Cappadocia is far larger uh, than this small geographical area. And in the 19th century, we have the same problem because there was no Cappadocia region in the Ottoman Empire. Before 1864, this area was part of the Eyalet of Karaman, but after the reform of the provinces in 1864, it was cut between the Vilayet of Kayseri uh, on the eastern side and the Vilayet of Konya on the western side. And when you look at the administrative border established by the Orthodox Church itself, uh, we, do you have the same problem because you had several dioceses uh, which organized the, re the region. Actually, 
two main dioceses, one for the western side, which was the diocese of Iconium, Conia, and the other one, dioceses of Caesaris, Caesarea. And the borders of the vilayet and of the dioceses are not the same. For instance, at the center of this region, you have the Nefshir, Urgup, and the village uh, surrounding them. They belong to one vilayet, but to the other dioceses. So the definition of these places, which ones I want to study, which ones I want not to study, is not possible from the administrative borders. Uh, and actually, for the Orthodox side, uh, another difficulty is that there was a third diocese which entered in this area in the late 80s, early 19th century, which was the diocese of Haldia, so the region of today Gumushane, where actually the rooms of the region was uh, working on in mines. And after the clothing of the mines of the region of Gumushane, they went to other region of Anatolia to find other places to work. So they settled in a tourist area and their diocese continued to control them. So you, you mentioned the community of the room, right, which are the Orthodox Christians who lived in the area. What were some of the other communities that were living in the villages, uh, you know, in and around Cappadocia? Yes, the, the Orthodox Christians or the room were about, it depends on the period for the beginning and the end of the period, we have not the same uh, population, of course, but we can say about 20% of the total population of the region that I define as Cappadocia, which is that I can border as the region between Aksarai, Nide. Kayseri and Nefshir. If you want to give a geographical definition, it's the south of the Kzilermak River, the west of the RGS Mounts, the north of the Taurus Chain, and the east of the Salt Lake or uh, Tuzgul. So for this region, it's not very easy to give clear numbers, clear statistics, because we have different administration uh, entities. Uh, so it's not the totality of the diocese of Iconium, for instance, or not the totality of the vilayet of Konya. So it's very difficult to have the precise number as for many places in the Ottoman Empire. De demography is always a problem. But uh, approximately, uh, the Greeks or the Rooms were about 20%. The majority of the population, of the local population, was... Uh, actually Muslim, in the towns as well as in the villages. And you have also a quite important, but limited to the Kayseri region, uh, you have the, the Armenian communities. And I, I used to wrote and to say uh, that Cappadocia is actually the, the end of the room or the or the Greek Anatolia, because after uh, Cappadocia in the eastern part, you have no more so many uh, villages, room villages. And it's the beginning of the Armenian Anatolia, because in Kayseri begins very the, the, the very big concentration of uh, Armenian communities. So these are kind of fascinating um, terms that we might not be familiar with today, the idea of a room Anatolia or an Armenian Anatolia. Can you tell us a little bit about how those communities uh, define themselves. Obviously, you know, religion was a question. Was there also a question of language? Um, were there kind of nascent ethnic identities? What what made somebody a room, for example? The religion, of course, because in the Ottoman Empire, 
everyone is defined by by his by his uh, or uh, religion. Uh, but it's not the only way to define the the room of Anatolia because one of the most important specificity of this specific region is that many of the the majority actually of these uh, room communities were Turkey speaking. It's the people that we call the so-called uh, Karaman people. But it's not it's not the whole population, the whole room population of the region. You have some uh, villages with Greek dialects, so it's not the Greek spoken in Istanbul or in Izmir. It's they are actually different dialects according to each village. So you have sometimes three or four villages speaking the same dialects and 10 or 20 kilometers further, another dialect, Greek dialect. So the language is also a, f a marker of identity in this region. And actually what I wanted to explore at the beginning of, of my PhD was, is religion the only way to make community? And is, if we add language, I do this to identify her enough to understand the way to make community. And uh, that, that's why I tried to add a third factor, which was more the geographical one, the local one. So being the member of this village, of this other village, can be maybe more important than being a Greek or being a Muslim. Uh, and especially in Cappadocia, you have many, many uh, villages with mixed population. So as you say, like Tanzimat had a very important impact on the ways in which state functioned and state institutions functioned and basically shaping the ways in which different communities interacted with each other. And But th this particular time, like early 19th century, Although this is a very uh, a milestone in the history of this particular region, it's not the only uh, historical event happening, especially considering the um, Orthodox Christian communities and Greek population uh, living in the Ottoman Empire. And, and a young and a very energetic um, Greek nation is also in the making in the uh, mainland Greece. Um, how did this uh, particular political event combined with the Tanzimans um, reforms affected what you're actually studying like local life and interaction between communities um, in, in Cappadocia at this particular moment? In fact, the, the fact that Cappadocia was quite isolated from uh, the border, the Aegean border from Greece, from the centers of the Ottoman, of the Ottoman Empire, has a particular impact in, on the way uh, these historical events impacted the region. Uh, for instance, uh, maybe it's not di directly linked to the Tanzimat, but in a way, yes. Uh, the economic economical issue is a very central question to understand how the local population were connected to the outside world, if you want. You are in a region which is far away from the from the sea. Later, when the railway will begin to be mm, built in the Ottoman Empire, it will stop before the entrance of Cappadocia, so, and it will go outside Cappadocia. So all the region remain quite isolated from economical exchanges, from the sea, and also from the political events which occurred outside the region. So they, I think that people were aware of what happened outside, but the consequences on their way of life was, uh, did not always happen at the time 
when the event occurred. So you have a kind of uh, dilated consequences on this, on this population. So the, for instance, the, in the war of independence of Greece, had a major impact on the people living in the region of Izmir, of the Aegean islands uh, on the Aegean coast, but not so many, no, had not so many uh, consequences on the Cappadocian ones. For the Tanzimat, for instance, I dealt with economical issues, but educative, educational issues is also an uh, important example. Thanks to the Tanzimats, but also because Greece had become an independent state, the education issue became a very important uh, question in Cappadocia. Uh, because from Greece and from Istanbul, the movement that we will call the Hellenization movement, the Megalidea in Greece, which began to be the base of the nationalist Greek nationalism, all this issue will uh, take place in the education. In some villages, uh, for instance in Sinassos, the first school uh, was created in 1870, which is a very early period. For the other places, it's later in the century, but it's thanks to the Tanzimat because of the education reform, but it also thanks to the uh, evolution of the mm, Greek nationalism on the other side. So in a question like education, you can see the consequences of these two historical events in Cappadocia, but it occurred, as I said, decades after, actually. So one of the things that's fascinating about this research is that by looking at these villages, as you said, that are kind of far from the Aegean coast, this is a very different geography than we're used to working with, um, thinking about questions about the room community, for example, is that you really ask us to rethink what it is that makes a community, whether it's language, whether it's religion, whether it's some combination of those or other factors, and also how we should think about space outside of the kind of nationalist narratives that would have us see, for example, Greece and Turkey as separate. So I'm hoping you could just tell us a little bit about those interventions. Yes, actually, I want to think the space together with the community, because uh, in the Ottoman historiography, we always deal with the religious communities, so the Miletirum, the, Armenia the Armenians, the Muslims, the, the Jewish communities. But uh, I want to, to look at other kinds of making community. And the case of Cappadocia was particularly interesting because we had the religious mixture or mixity, uh, but also the linguistical one in a quite clear uh, area, so quite concentrated area. And that's why I wanted to begin this, this research with a mapping of all these criteria and all these communities. Uh, and the first thing that I, I searched in the archives, in the Karamandika publication, uh, was which community lived where. So... After mapping every religious communities, every linguistical communities, uh, you you are able also to see uh, which one lived in which place and to make some hypothesis about uh, the potential connections that you have between the language and the way to be a community or the religion and the way to be a community or the space and the way to be a community. There was, there were three uh, main uh, criteria in in my in my research: the region, uh, the language, and the geography. If you want, in the 
conceptual or theoretical uh, background, it was a bit difficult at the beginning to find uh, how I will be able to deal with these three kind of communities. Sometimes it's mi mixed up, the same community has the same religion and the same language, sometimes it has not. So uh, it was quite difficult also because many words such as the word community has, especially in Ottoman historiography, a specific meaning. So f when you say community, you think first religious community generally in the Ottoman context. So I found another word, I'm not sure that it's the best one, but uh, to deal with the geographical one, I, want, I, I, I decided to use the, the term collectivity, to collect, to, to have everything together. The linguistic aspect actually, uh, after some research, went to the background uh, because I thought that uh, you have Karaman, so Turkish-speaking communities, but actually with the education process, what we mentioned uh, earlier, uh, many of them, even if they did not change their, their native tongue, were able to speak Greek or at least to understand Greek. In communities where I live together, Greek-speaking communities, Christian communities, and Muslims, generally the Muslims were able to understand Greek because they live together with the Greek from their uh, from their birth. So it was quite normal to be able to understand and to speak at least a bit the, the long language of the other. So uh, this bilinguality of these rural people, because we uh, ev we always speak about the intellectuals who are able to speak French, Ottoman Turkish, Greek, Armenian, etc. But actually, even in the in this kind of rural areas where so many uh, different communities of many different linguistic linguistical groups are living together, people also, even if they do not if they are not able to read any one of these languages, uh, they are able to speak sometimes one, two, three of them. So uh, the linguistic aspect that I consider as the main uh, criteria at the beginning of my research became secondary criteria uh, when I compared it with, with the geographical one. So you found that people inhabiting the same space, who lived in the same town and who knew each other from birth, actually constituted uh, a collectivity despite the fact that perhaps they were stronger or less strong in particular languages, that they did have a kind of language of coexistence. Yes, you you have a when when I I, I map these communities, I saw that there were some uh, combination of of criteria. So, for instance, when you look at at the map, you see that the mixed villages, so the villages with Greek with Rum and with Muslim population, are mostly villages of Turkey speaking Greek uh, Rum communities, and the villages where uh, people are speaking a Greek dialect more often uh, are uh, homogeneous villages, even if you have some exceptions, of course. So these linguistic and geographical uh, criteria are uh, superimposed or combi combined together. Actually, this collectivity, as I said, so the geographical community, can be stronger in some places and uh, weaker in, in other ones. For instance, in the area of Güzel Yurt, today Güzel Yurt, at that time Galveri, and uh, the other villages, mixed villages in the, in the area, these collectivities were quite strong. For instance, you can see very 
frequent cases of uh, shared worship places. Is that just by chance? I mean, do you have, did you sort of see any any patterns or trends that you could pull out? I don't, I don't think that it, it's, that it's other, it's only chance. Uh, and I think that it's a combination of many, many different uh, reasons which can be even the quality of the of the soil for instance because you have you are in a region of uh, a quite dry region in places where the life is easier it's also easier to uh, coexist with the others the others which can be muslims or greek so it's not because your neighbor is muslim that you will not have exchange with it uh, and and if it is not because it is a room that you have a w you will have exchange with with him so it's difficult to to make a catalog or a list of the criteria of the factors of this coexistence actually but it's in some place it will be uh, the the quality of the of the soil in other places maybe something else so it's it's i think that you have no one one uh, possible response so I didn't. Um, so this concept of tolerance versus coexistence, you have a very like nice section in your introduction where you discuss how an Ottoman historian who is working on different communities and living together should deal with, and you're also very massively showing us that the, there's a, actually limits of imagining the Ottoman societies in terms of like coexistence. It's not an easy terminology it's not an easy conceptualization especially in the context of 19th century so i would like to just bring in the way that you discuss this in in your own context in the context of cappadocia this is still an, a very important historiographical question for many ottoman historians so what's your formula um when i worked on all this theoretical background they had they they were there were so many words to to speak about coexistence, you have the word tolerance, you have the word coexistence, but you have also uh, words like cohabitation, co-presence, for instance. Uh, so at the, at the end, you have to choose one of them <laughs> to speak about it. I've made the choice rather to, to use coexistence rather than tolerance, for instance, because in especially in the Ottoman historiography, the and even in other uh, regions of the world, I think about the middle, uh, medieval uh, Spain, for instance, where you have also this question of the relations between the Muslims, uh, Arabic Muslims and the, uh, the Spanish people. The word tolerance is often thought as something coming from the top, so as if dominating people, uh, gov governing people were tolerating the other ones or were protected the other ones in the case of the on the Islamic empires for instance so it's something which comes from an unequal relations between the different groups especially the religious groups in the case of coexistence i was uh, i thought that it was closer to a, an anthropological approach so it has not the negative sense that you can find it if you think about uh, tolerance in the case of coexistence you have two groups who are with the other one it looks like more the, um, i will say objective maybe to begin to work on on this on this issue 
Right, and another thing that actually comes out that it's, this is not necessarily like an like a Muslim Christian relationship, but there were also within the room community there was like a whole context of coexistence linguistically and education wise. Yes, actually, when I I, I spoke about communities for uh, defining the religious ones and collectivities for defining the geographical ones, coexistence can happen between communities but also between collectivities so two uh, neighboring villages will coexist uh, in the way to share for instance the, the pasture lands for instance so it's also a way of coexisting and the both both villages can be from the same religious group so both uh, greek or both muslim so coexistence was a word which was quite uh, useful uh, to work on all these kind of uh, intergroup relations and inside the so also between greek speaking and turkish speaking christians for instance also between armenian and rooms even if it was not the at this the center of my research the armenians uh, especially because you have as i said at the beginning only armenians mostly on in the kayseri region and not so many uh, in the other place uh, places of Cappadocia. But for instance, in this mapping issue, uh, which is a bit uh, obsessional, <laughs> uh, you can, I found many Greek or room Muslim villages, mixed villages, but only one or two, if I remember, room Armenian villages. Sometimes in the very close uh, area around Kayseri, we have also uh, big villages, Kasaba. Uh, which were inhabited by Muslims, Rum, and Armenians. It was also a possibility, and Catholics and Protestants in the case of Talas, which was a center of the American, and but also Fran French Catholic and Protestant missionaries. I think that if there, there, there are so many villages inhabited by Muslims and uh, Rum, and so few villages inhabited by Armenian and Rum, maybe it's because it was easier to coexist with them with Muslim neighbors than with Armenian neighbors. It's it, it's only an hypothesis in hypothesis, but it can be a reason of this partial uh, location of the communities. Uh, so island migration has come up a couple of times during our discussion so far, and uh, particularly we no we notice sort of tremendous amounts of emigration from the region during the period. I think one. Uh, fact you include in your dissertation is perhaps 40% of the male population of Kayseri had emigrated out of the out of the region at that time. So I wonder if you could talk a bit about how migration itself was a factor of these Tanzima changes, but also how migration and migrants themselves were contributing to sort of the changes in coexistence uh, and collectivity that you discuss in the rest of your dissertation. Actually, I think that migra migra migration has always been a central issue uh, for everywhere in the, on the world, and especially in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, for instance, the, when you, you look at the Karamanlu population, uh, the word Karamanlu itself uh, has been used for the first time in its Germanic uh, version by a German traveler who saw people that he thought they were coming from Karaman, but in Istanbul. So it was a community of Turkey-speaking Orthodox Christians living in Istanbul, and he called them Karama Karaman because he, th he thought that they came from Karaman, and it was in the 16th century. 
So, uh, and actually this population was certainly a part of the migrants from Karaman Eyaliti and especially from uh, Cappadocia. So migration has always been a part of the life of these people, I think, but it's sure that, that during the Tanzimat, thanks to some, some of the reforms made during the Tanzimat, also because of some difficulties that people experienced at that time, uh, migration became a very massive uh, movement, especially among the Rum and the Armenian communities of Cappadocia. The difficulties that I mentioned earlier uh, are mainly the economical one, the fact that the region remained quite isolated from the other, uh, from the economical uh, networks. So people had not so many work to do in, in, the, in the area, especially people working from trade, because the normal roads uh, were cancelled because of the development of boats or railways. In the 19th century, and especially in the second part of the 19th century, this migration, migration issue became really a massive one. And uh, when I think massive one is that it's because in some of the villages inhabited by the rooms especially, around the 80s, 70s, uh, you had no more men living in the villages because everyone, every man working in Istanbul or in other places outside the village and outside Cappadocia. So the main place of emigration was Istanbul, uh, but you had also people uh, migrated to Izmir, to coastal towns such as Mersin, which began, which became an, uh, an important center at that time, Adana, Samsun on the Black Sea side, uh, and always uh, also outside the Anatolia, uh, at least, Cairo, Alexandria, to Greece in Athens, to Europe, to the United States, etc. So all these people who had emigrated from Cappadocia organized themselves in order to set up uh, kind of networks of migrants. And I always make the comparison with the Turks people, who the Turks who emigrated to Germany, for instance, in the 19th, uh, 60s, uh, 70s, etc. The, the organization is quite, is quite uh, similar. And they called also these networks the, in Karaman, the Turkish, they called them Hemsheri uh, networks, Adelphotis in the Greek version. So it was kind of networks of compatriotism. So people coming from the same villages organize its own network in immigration. And these networks has been, have been very important for the development of education, of the schools, the opening of the schools in Cappadocia, but also for the all kind of developments of the villages of origin. So the, the the building of the church, of the new church, the building of school, of hammam, of libraries sometimes. So it, it, it was very at, at the very base of many changes in the local, in, in Cappadocia. And these changes had many consequences on local room populations, those who remained in Cappadocia, but also on their Muslim neighbors because, because all the life was reorga reorganized around this, this issue of migration since room men were away. So you, the, the families need people to work on their lands, for instance. So they employed Muslims or they shared the crops 
with the Muslim neighbors who work on the lands, etc. So uh, you have many, all the, the life was reorganized according to, to this migration issue. Can I just ask you just quickly, what, why was it that the room men were so much more likely to, to migrate than the Muslim men? Um, you mentioned that there were networks that were set up, so it was obviously easier, but were there also kind of like push factors? It's it it was a, a question that I asked myself <laughs> many times actually, uh, and it's 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 quite in interesting because it's the same for the Armenians. Uh, the Armenian men went to immigrate emigrated from uh, the region of Kayseri, but the Muslim not so much. So uh, I I frequently ask myself why why the Muslim did not go. Uh, because they they saw that the Greeks won in some places such as Sinassos, by for instance Mustafa Pasha, uh, the emig the migration process made the the room community very uh, wealthy, and they had also uh, they they were also Muslims in this village, and they saw that it can you can earn many mon uh, much money in in immigration. So why did they not go like the the room? I'm not sure to have find uh, <laughs> the, the, the answer. Uh, actually, one of the main archive source, uh, primary source I used to work on on this uh, on on this question of the why the Muslim did not did not emigrate, was the um, oral tradition archives of the Center for Asia Minor Studies in in Athens, which is uh, I think that it's important now to, to to speak about because it was one of the main archives I used uh, during all my my research. They, uh, this archive uh, is a collection of testimonies collected uh, in Greece from the 1930s to the 1970s with uh, people who, Greek people who left Anatolia and especially Cappadocia uh, with the exchange of population. And this migration issue was one of the questions uh, which was asked to them systematically. And many of these informants of these room uh, men or women who, who live in Cappadocia at that time regularly say that we migrated, but the Muslims did not. It is uh, something that come back regularly in this in these archives. In few cases, few examples, you have uh, someone who's, who explained that one of his Muslim uh, neighbors tried to m migrate too and became a very wealthy man uh, in Istanbul, for instance. But they they talk about these Muslim migrants as if they were exceptions, actually. The difficulty is that these archives are produced only from the room side, so you have not the equivalents on the, on the, on the Muslim side or Turkish side. When you look at the Ottoman archives, it's quite difficult to have a clear image of the Muslim mig migration. So it's quite difficult to have the, the equivalent in on the other side. Is that that these people did not migrate or only did not appear in the archives? It's quite difficult actually to say, uh, but it's, uh, it's, it remains an open question actually. Uh, now that you've brought up the oral histories archive in Athens, I think it would be useful to just kind of reflect on the ways in which the population exchange, sort of the end of your dissertation, created major changes among these communities or collectivities uh, and within Cappadocia as a region itself. So where did these communities end up 
after the 1920s, uh, where might we expect to find sort of the old uh, Karamanlas now, and, and how did this sort of rupture become represented, again, in the landscape of Cappadocia itself, either then or, or now? After the exchange of population, it's quite different from a place to the other. Uh, for instance, uh, one of the community that I mentioned earlier, the from the village of Galveri, today Guzelyurt, has uh, left Turkey and settled in Greece altogether. So you have now, and it's the case for many other uh, villages from Cappadocia, but also from other parts of Anatolia, you have Galveri in Anatolia and Nea Carvali in Greece, for instance. So, so some of these, uh, many of these villages have maintained their community in Greece, but other ones have been spread through Greece in Athens, in different car uh, district of Athens, etc. But when, when you look at the oral traditional archives, generally the, the um, member of the Center of Asia Minor Studies who went to this to the interview, precise uh, at the beginning of each uh, archive, uh, that he went to this district of Athens, for example, of this other one, and you have generally often the same names of districts uh, which appear. So there was certainly a kind of recreation of the, of the former community. So today, by talking about the history of Muslims and Orthodox Christians and others in 19th century Cappadocia, we really opened up the questions of what makes a community, um, what makes a space, and what makes a history, right? I mean, this, this piece about thinking about what archives are available, what kinds of communities are constituted in an archive, and what kinds of communities are not, um, is also, I think, a really fascinating question, you know, to leave our listeners with as we close this episode. So, Eileen, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, too. <laughs> and thank you also to Ella and Sechel, my co-hosts. Um, we've covered a lot of material here today. Obviously, there's a lot more to be said. So we encourage our listeners to keep their eyes out for the publication of Island's dissertation as a book, um, which we are hoping to see in the near future. And also to check out the bibliography that we will post on our website, www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com. You can also check out the website for other episodes that historicize common markers of identity and belonging in the history of the Ottoman and post-Ottoman worlds. And please, as always, feel free to join us on Facebook, where we stay in touch with our community of now over 30,000 followers and post news about upcoming series and episodes. That's all for this episode. Until next time, take care. <laughs>